Hi, everyone. This is Martin Willis with the Antique Auction Forum, and welcome to episode number 108 with David Schorsch of Woodbury, Connecticut. A couple of announcements. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash auction underscore podcast. You can like us on Facebook, and that icon is on our website, which is antiqueauctionforum.com. And something I always forget to mention is you can make a comment under these podcasts. You just click on the podcast page, and down below, it's very easy to leave a comment. I always enjoy comments, so you're welcome to do that. Also, if you're listening to us on iTunes or some other podcast site, please do leave us a review. Your feedback is always important to us. And if you have an idea for the show or an idea for a guest, please do email us at info at antiqueauctionforum.com. Again, David Schorsch is our guest today, and I hope you enjoy the show. This podcast is sponsored by WorthPoint. Find out what your antiques are worth at worthpoint.com. I'm here in Woodbury, Connecticut with David Schorsch. And how are you doing, David? Having a good day. Yes. Thank you so much. A, a lovely shop you have here. Some really amazing things. Thank and you for coming. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I've known of you. You're a few years younger than me, actually about seven years younger than me. Yet, I remember hearing about you when I was in my 20s. Right. Right. <laughs> let's, let's talk about how you started your background. Okay, well, start with the fact that I come from a family of collectors. Uh, my father and mother and my uh, aunt and uncle were uh, active collectors. Uh, we lived in Pennsylvania, so I would say beginning in the 1950s through the 60s into the 70s, which were the formative years of my childhood, uh, you know, my, my parents were actively collecting uh, a wide variety of antiques, Americana, uh, Delftware, Chinese export, brass, oriental carpets, formal furniture, country furniture, uh, you know, very traditional kinds of antiques of that time period. Now, did you, you must have had a large house to have all these. We, we had a, a good-sized home in, in Pennsylvania. We lived in Pennsylvania until about 1974 or 5, and then we moved to Greenwich, Connecticut, and we had a larger house there. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father and uncle were in the scrap metal refining business, so that was the uh, the source of revenue that afforded them the luxury of collecting. Mm. It's a family business that goes back to the 19th century. Wow. And uh, well, we started as junk bin and became scrap refiners. <laughs> uh, but I guess it's sort of full circle, junk to junk. Yeah. What sparked your interest? Was it just that your parents were collecting? Well, Did no, they I, teach I, you things? I was one of five children. I'm the youngest of, of five children. Mm-hmm. And I really have to say I was the only one who was truly bitten by the bug. Mm-hmm. And I think it really started with just a curiosity. You know, I, I realized early on that, you know, our house was different than other people's houses. <laughs> and everything interested me. You know, I wanted to know, you know, why an OG foot was an OG foot, and I wanted to know why a Philadelphia chair was a different than a New England chair. And mm-hmm. you know, they had a reference library. You know, I was I, I read the current issue of Antiques magazine, and there's an article in there by Tom Savage called "The Boy Who Loved Antiques," mm-hmm. and he tells of his. He's a bit older than me, but he tells about his childhood and how Antiques magazine sort of wove its way through. 
And I swear to God that I can remember running to the mailbox, you know, at seven or eight years old to get the Antiques magazine to see what was in, you know, Israel Sachs' ad and and things like that. And uh, it mattered to me. Um, Now, did you want to know every bit about the history of these pieces or I, I was interested in first and foremost, you know, the, the objects themselves, mm-hmm. you know, what made them definable and recognizable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the history was, was interesting too. And I, I have an interest in American history, general interest in American history. Um, but I really was interested. And I think I was drawn to the beauty of the things. There was something about mm-hmm. them that made my heart pound. Yeah. It still does. Yeah. And, you know, I can remember going to antique shows with my parents. We had, uh, vacations were were built around hmm. antiquing and visiting you know the the main the main antique dealers of that era mm-hmm. uh, but I just always wanted to know and I think that the antique dealers that we visited found it amusing and interesting and I'm sure that they dealt with many many couples who brought their kids and they had to occupy the kids or get the kids to occupy themselves and I was actually interested sort of sitting on the floor and listening. Wow. So uh, it made me a, a bit different and yeah. certainly odd. <laughs> <laughs> now, did any of your other siblings carry on any type of collecting at all? Uh, not, not, not in the same way. Uh, I have one brother who really despises anything <laughs> antique. I have another brother who has an appreciation for things. Yeah. I have a sister who's, two sisters who appreciate it, but not in the same way. I was, yeah. I was bitten, and I was bitten early. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and as a child, I actually started to collect things. Uh, the first thing I collected were early hats, and hats led me to hat boxes and wow. band boxes. And, as and some a, of them are pretty... Amazing. Right. And, and as, a, as a boy, I had stacks and stacks and stacks of hat boxes. And <laughs> sometimes when my parents were visiting, you know, prominent antique dealers like Florine Maine and people like that, you know, they might be considering buying a flat top pie boy and there was a hat box on top and, you know, they'd throw the hat box in, you know, <laughs> hey, kid, go shut up and play with the hat box. But I put together a, a very comprehensive hat box collection mm-hmm. modeled after the one at the Shelburne Museum. Really? And I had some that were weren't represented in the Shelburne collection and um, have continued to be interested in them to this day. I don't have the collection any longer, but uh, I do have interest in hat boxes. Yeah, I did look around. I didn't see any hat boxes here. No, I have one, but it's it's in the closet. It's not it's not for sale. <laughs> You're a closet collector now. <laughs> I, I am a closet collector, actually, of, of a number of things. Yeah, yeah. So we're, we have a mutual friend, Kate Manko. Yes. In the Manko's Ken. Yes, Ida Manko. indeed. And I have to tell you, I'm going to want to tell the listeners a story that I that Ken told me. Okay. Ken's a great storyteller. He's one of the best. Yeah. He said you were at a museum. Now, correct me if any of this is wrong. Or, uh, and you were like 14 or 15 years old. You were there with your mom. Mm-hmm. And there was a uh, Windsor chair. It was the York, Pennsylvania <laughs> Antique <laughs> Show. And it was, uh, okay. it was a, a prominent dealer's booth whose name, yes. out of respect, I'll leave out. And then uh, from what I gather is uh, your mother said, go look at that beautiful chair over there. And you went over and you the said, hey, this is ended out. It's her chair that was ended out. That's right. <laughs> now, ended out, for the listener that may not know what it means, is basically uh, a lot of people had dirt floors, uh, legs rotted, and they did a little angle cut and pieced in a piece of the leg. And sometimes it's really difficult to tell. Sometimes it's really good. 
Uh, but anyway, he had to pull the chair out. Of the show. Well, no, the the dealer the dealer uh, begrudgingly had to accept it. But you know, he said, "Who is that kid?" Right. Um, <laughs> you know, young eyes. You know, there's yeah, something to be said right. for you know a 14 year old set of eyeballs. You know, yeah. we all had better eyesight when we were when we were younger. But Windsor chairs were something that was always a, a great love of mine and continues to be. And I've uh, over the years set some auction records and had the privilege of handling some really first-rate Windsor chairs and uh, try and get them back when I can. Yeah, I want to talk about that a little later when you say get them back. Um, um, but for right now, I remember Ronnie Borjo had a continuous arm Windsor that sold for 70000 This was back in 1987 yes. yes. or eight. It was 1987. Did you buy that one? I didn't. I bid on it. Uh, Charlie Santori bought it. It was a great, great chair. And uh, by today's standards, it seems like a bargain, but that was an awful lot of money. That was a lot of money. It was then. an awful I mean, that was yeah. probably by a factor of seven, the highest price that a Windsor yeah. brought up to that I was point. scratching my head when I read that. But, but you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a proportion or an equation, you know, mm-hmm. that, that we all have to deal with going forward, even to the last few weeks, um, that there is a, a quantum difference in value between something that's really good mm-hmm. and truly the greatest. Right. And these objects in any category of collecting, and I'm sure mm-hmm. it extends in other fields uh, beyond the American world, uh, that, you know, the, the record price for something could be 10000 and if the right masterpiece comes along yep. in the right condition under the right circumstances, it can bring almost anything. Right. You know. Yep. And it makes it very difficult to try and figure out at an, at when, what these things are worth. Now, was it Israel Sachs' book, Better, Best, and what? It was Albert. Albert, Albert. Sachs wrote uh, oh, yes. Amer- Fine Points of Furniture, Early American, in which he used the, the good, better, best nomenclature. Yeah. Yep. yeah. I saw that happen firsthand one time. A guy that used to work at Skinner's many years ago picked up a Baltimore settee painted. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I'm looking at it, and I'm thinking... Wow, that's nice. And he goes, no, that's really nice. <laughs> and it commanded a huge amount of money at the exactly. time. Exactly. And uh, it just makes a world of difference. Now, I see you have kind of a a real array of different types of styles here. And well, again, you know, in the antique business and probably other businesses too, people tend to put you into a box. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for people that don't visit me or might not look at my website or know more about me or visit me at the Winter Antique Show, they might think of me as, oh, that's David Shorsh, the folk art guy, uh-huh. or David Shorsh, the painted furniture guy, or David Shorsh, the Windsor chair guy, which is all well and good. But, you know, I have an interest in formal furniture, which goes back to my childhood, and I have a pretty expansive knowledge of, of formal furniture, and I always handle and have available a small number. My inventory is small. I mean, this building is, I don't know, a few thousand square feet, so we're not talking about a large inventory. It never was. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is it is probably more diverse mm-hmm. within the field of Americana than people might think. So I have, you know, a Salem ball and claw foot table, and I've got Philadelphia Windsor chairs and mm-hmm. Vermont chests and Pennsylvania Dower chests and folk paintings by, you know, notable portrait painters and carvings and weather vanes and I handle shaker things and yes. Uh, now on your website, you have a really great folk art painting of a bunch of animals. Yes, the Peaceable Kingdom. 
The Peaceful <clears throat> Kingdom. Yes. Love that painting. Yes. I was thinking about putting that up on this podcast. That's I think a, I will. That's a, yeah. great, that's a great Peaceable Kingdom. Uh, many people are probably familiar with Edward Hicks's uh, oh, yeah. Peaceable Kingdom, and that, that is an Edward Hicks Peaceable Kingdom mm. uh, that was actually uh, owned in the Hicks family and uh, was accompanied by Edward Hicks's own Quaker hymnal book that he mm. signed. And that was something that uh, we bought and sold in 1990. And at that time, we sold it for $1.1 million, which at that wow. time was, a, a, for a very short time, a record price for <laughs> an American folk painting. Uh-huh. And Edward Hicks' Peaceable Kingdoms have brought close to $10 million, uh, for one that sold at auction wow. within the last several years. So it still was a great deal of money, but mm-hmm. uh, has... Uh, would have would it come to market again? It would uh, you know sell for a price well in excess of what it sold for, yeah. multiples of what it sold for. Would you put that in one of the top ten of really interesting things you own? Certainly. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm very proud of that painting, and they're very hard to handle and uh, um, expensive. And uh, the you know the moon and the stars came together for me. <laughs> uh, the, the story that accompanies is way too long for you and I to share. <laughs> but suffice it to say, it was something that I was after, didn't get, and had another shot at. And uh, the people that ended up with it really deserved it because they were very patient. And uh, and you know as as expensive as that was, and it obviously takes a person of of resources to do it. Uh, the people I believe had to take out a, a, a second mortgage on their house. And it's so money well spent, though. It was, but yeah. it, it says that this is not somebody who's, who's spending interest on their interest. Uh-huh, uh-huh. This was a, a sacrifice. Yes. And it makes it more meaningful to yeah, me. Yeah, that's I mean, great. You know, it's great to sell to people of, of you know, unlimited means, but it means more to me when there's mm-hmm. an element of sacrifice involved. I understand that totally. You know? Yeah. It's not just a petty item. It isn't, and it isn't just another trophy. Yeah. And I think that sometimes when you read about these world record prices that happen at contemporary art auctions and, and other things, whether it's that scream painting at Sotheby's, you know, somewhere in the back of my mind, I think that there's a, a level of wealth attainment where after you've bought your yacht and your houses and your Rolls Royces and everything else and you want to impress your friends... You know, what else can you buy next? Oh, you know, I'll buy a $100 million painting. Mm-hmm. And somebody mm-hmm. will walk in and know just how wealthy that person is. And, you know, it's their right, and it's it's great, but it's not the same as someone who really loves it. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, I have a client of mine who has an expression that they'd eat worms to get something. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, you know, I've, I've worked with people who've, you know, had to sacrifice and not go on vacations and, you know, not buy other things. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, the, the fellow who the Peaceable Kingdom painting came from, you know, used to joke about, you know, that he lived on ketchup sandwiches <laughs> after he bought the painting. Uh-huh. So, um, well, that's, it's a passion for collecting is what that. Well, it is. And it's a human dimension. And I think it's something that goes beyond price and, mm-hmm. and, and beyond it just being a, uh, you know, a recognizable icon. It's, it's about uh, something more. Right, right. As far as someone getting into collecting, mm-hmm. you know, you have very high-end things. Yes, I like, like to think so. Yes. Um, how would you suggest, like, someone uh, I, I, start collecting correctly? Well, I can say this from personal experience because I myself personally collect in areas outside of what I deal in. Mm-hmm. And I've tried to use the same 
advice and strategies that I would recommend for someone who wants to collect Americana, hmm. which is that you should you know, get to know dealers that are considered to be tops in their fields, one or two, get to know them well, and ask them lots and lots and lots of questions. Batter them with questions. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if they want to sell you something, ask about it. Where does it rate? How does it compare? Where are the other ones? How many of them have sold? Mm-hmm. Have they sold privately? Have they sold publicly? What makes one better than another? What's the condition of this one? What's the condition of that one? And if, if you're working with the right person, and you know it's, it's, a, it's a personal fit, and there's an element of personality that comes into all of these things. But I think if you, if you get the right dealer to work with, uh, they're going to share with you information that would be unavailable and unattainable mm-hmm. in other traditional methods. You, know, you can read every book on the yes. subject. You can read the main antique digest. You can subscribe to every auction catalog. But there is a story behind the story. There's information behind information. And it's just about you know comparative analysis. And if someone mm-hmm. has been doing some one thing, like myself, you know, for thirty-five years, been focused on looking at one kind of thing, you know, that's a lot of visual memory, and uh, mm-hmm. it's available. And uh, you know, that that's what I would say. I think that if you you come in and someone might read about me buying you know a sampler for a million dollars or something, well, you know, that's all well and good. But if someone came to visit me. First of all, they wouldn't have to buy anything, and they can look, and they Mm -hmm. can talk. And I've had clients of mine that I've ultimately worked with who visited me for months and years Mm -hmm. just talking, just asking questions, getting out books, having conversation, you know, taking the measure of each other and learning from each other, getting a sense of someone's taste and style and budget Mm -hmm. and lifestyle, and then... Some, sometimes they just surprise me by one day buying something. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it leads to more. Um, but it's, it's a dance that I think is, is uh, well worth doing and yeah. you know, can, can result in some very special knowledge being imparted. Well, I think that's great that you have the patience to do that and, there, and that you invest like that. Because I think that's... One of the things that has tempered the business quite a bit is when dealers will not share their knowledge. Well, I, one of the things I'm most proud of is, you know, since we, I've been in business and I've been a full-time antique dealer since 1981, um, are the catalogs that we've produced. Uh, we've produced over a dozen catalogs. We've written articles. I've been involved with the production of two major books uh, over mm-hmm. the past seven years and you know those are about sharing information Mm -hmm. and information brings transparency and Mm -hmm. it validates everything we do this this shouldn't be shrouded in secrecy there's reasons why the portraits on the wall behind you have a certain value they have a value that's based on a body of work and if someone came in and said, tell me about those pictures, I could explain who painted them, who they are. But more importantly, if we had the time, I could get out photographs of you know, virtually every other published example by this artist and those that have sold and that I know what prices they've sold for. And the client themselves can put into that c- continuum 
where these pieces belong. Mm -hmm. And that's the most important thing. Where do they rank? Mm -hmm. Right. I agree with that. Because there's a price for a good piece. Mm -hmm. There's a price for a great piece. There's nothing wrong with a good piece. Mm -hmm. Good pieces are perfectly fine. There's lots of good pieces. Yeah. But they have to be priced as good pieces. And then those that are really the best and really great, you know, exist at a different uh, level of price. Right. Now, the economy, a lot of people have talked about the economy hurting mm -hmm. their business. But the type of things that I consider that you're dealing in do not seem to be as much affected. No, as I, don't, I don't think they are. Uh, I think that uh, that would be true in other fields too. You know, if you're dealing with, uh, you know, prime New York City real estate, mm -hmm. you know, at a certain location, yeah, it has fluctuations. You know, uh, you know, 2009, you know, was a very bad time for everyone in the art business. It was a very scary time. No one knew mm -hmm. where we were headed. But I think that at the upper end of the marketplace, um, there are fewer players. But there's also fewer goods. Mm -hmm. It's it's more thinly traded, and you don't have the swings in price because you also don't have as many objects trading. Right. So it's not it's not likely that as many comparable examples can come out at any given time. They just don't exist anymore. Yeah. The the market uh, the supply of of superlative examples uh, is diminishing because yes. certain great collections have been put together. Uh, things get donated to museums. Things get promised to museums. And in my case, I've sold things to wealthy individuals who they're never going to come back into the market because they simply don't need to sell them. Mm -hmm. And they like them. So mm -hmm. if someone of yeah. a certain level of wealth, for example, owns a peaceable kingdom and the people are worth, you know, not in the case of that painting, but I'm just using it as an example, if someone's worth, you know, billions and billions of dollars when and if the time comes that they're settling their estate, you know, they don't need to sell the peaceable kingdom to pay the estate taxes. Mm -hmm. You know, it'll be handled by something else. And, you know, if the kids like the peaceable kingdom, they're going to keep the peaceable kingdom. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it's, it's not necessarily a good thing for me, but it's <laughs> good for them. Yeah. When I first came in, I pointed at a really unique table you have over there in paint. Yeah. And I said, how would you replace if you sell something this nice, how will you replace it? I can't. Something? I can't because uh, that's a one-of-a-kind, unique object. And in one sense, it's a, a vicious cycle because it's, it's, you know, once I sell it, it's gone. And, you know, in the old days, I used to, you know, do the equivalent of, say, a, a bowfront chest or a flat-top pipe or a federal card table. You know, if, if you make those kind of things your market, and I sold a nice bow front, I'm sure in the next 90 days, if I made it my business, I could go out and find another nice bow mm -hmm. front chest. Um, and that's a great business model when those things are selling and selling well. But um, in, that, in that case, that table is the only one like it I've ever seen. Yeah. And once it's gone, it's gone. Now, Kate said that I should ask you this question, and that is... Uh, You've re-owned a number of things. Yes, I believe so I believe in in uh, reacquiring uh, things. Actually, there's a table in the other room that um, Kate and her parents, I should say her parents, because Kate was a baby at the time, got a estate in Biddeford. A woman named Addie Piper. This would have been in the early '80s, mm -hmm. and they bought this estate and they sold. I think the bulk of it to 
with the dealers Bert and Gail Savage. Oh, I heard this story. Who were wonderful yeah. dealers and yeah. people I have the greatest respect for. They had wonderful taste and they were great friends of my mother's and myself. And uh, they sold us this table. And I think I've owned this table now five times <laughs> since 1982. Really? And each time it has come up and I've had the opportunity to buy it, I buy it again. Yeah. And like if that. that doesn't demonstrate, you know, making a market in something and believing in it and putting mm-hmm. your money behind it because it, it it hasn't necessarily flown out the door each time. It's been an <laughs> effort to sell it. Uh-huh. But it's more about the recognition of the quality of the object and saying, I think this is truly blue chip. And mm-hmm. each time it comes up, I'm gonna I'm gonna stand behind it and buy it back. Um and it's it's it tells me that there's a universe of objects out there that we put our brand on. Mm-hmm. that we want to get. And I think hopefully clients would recognize that that also um, speaks to uh, our belief in the objects and that mm-hmm. uh, it also represents a certain kind of equity. Yes. Because yeah. we, are, we get our things back in trade and mm-hmm. we buy things back directly. We also buy things back that come through auction mm-hmm. um, with our provenance on them. And... Um, it's a ready supply and it's material I know. And if it yeah. hasn't been, you know, dip stripped or broken and it's in the yeah. same condition, why wouldn't I want it back? Well, it's funny when things go to auction mm-hmm. and then the people turn it back and, uh, you know, bring it back to auction. Yes. There's always that stigma and it always goes for less. It's a little different when you're a dealer and you buy it. Well, it, it depends. I mean, there's pieces that I've had that have come to auction and brought less. There's things that I've had that come to auction and brought bring significantly higher prices. You know, one of my favorite ones was a fireboard that my mother and I got privately from a family, and we sold it to a woman named Virginia Ramsey Pope, and she was a former dealer who had a beautiful home in Vermont and uh, decided over a period of time to, to collect, and she had the means and put together a lovely collection. And I want to say in the early 90s, uh, for whatever personal reasons, she decided to have a sale of her collection at uh, Northeast Auctions, oh, yeah. Ronnie Bourgeau. And it was a, uh, an eye-opener because it went against the, the norm that you have to be dead uh, <laughs> to really cash in in a big way on your collection. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, this, this fireboard came up, and I wanted it. And I had a client who wanted it, and it was estimated around forty to sixty thousand. And I think I bid it up to two hundred and fifty or sixty thousand, and didn't get it. Wow! And it sold to some collectors, and tragically, the folks that bought it were um, flying home from a trip to Cape Cod, and their plane crashed. Their oh. name was Paley, Julian Sandy Paley. And their children had an auction within a year or so at Sotheby's. So the fireboard was back up for auction mm-hmm. within a you know, relatively short period of time. And you know from experience that this is not a, a, a recipe for increase mm-hmm. in price. It's usually a recipe for decrease in price. Mm-hmm. Well, once again, we went after our fireboard. And I, this time it brought like... 350,000. And again, I underbid it. And it just, it wasn't meant for me, but it also spoke to the quality of that piece and and that it sort of 
didn't, it, 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 the market couldn't define it. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it was so exceptional and unique uh, that, you know, it, it defined itself. I love underbidders, by the way. They're yes, very important. They're, they're, the, yeah. they're the great unsung heroes of the art world. <laughs> That's uh, right. I've, I was tempted one time to, to put on my website, you know, all the pieces I've underbid. <laughs> You know, because you know, <laughs> that's kind of like the fishing story—the one that got the one away. that got away. <laughs> but boy, it makes yeah. a difference. Yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I had this person that, when I saw her walk in the door, I was always excited when I had an auction because she may not own everything she bid on, but she was my best underbidder. Oh, yeah. She kept They're, it. She kept it they, straight. They, they make the market. Yeah. Now, were you talking about the? The tea table, the Queen Anne tea table over there earlier—is that the table you're talking no, about? No, I was this uh, oh, this, this table, which is a uh, uh, Massachusetts North Shore, Massachusetts. Uh, mm. They call a single drop leaf table, and right. it's made of plum pudding mahogany and has oh, yes, its old or original finish, and has a ridge on the knee mm. that's typical of North Shore. And uh, this is something that uh, came out of an old collection, and Florine Maine sold it in 1953, and it was in her ad, and she wow. at that time thought it was Newport. And, you know, we've learned so much more about regionalism Mm -hmm. that you can understand why she thought it was Newport. But now we we know from the overwhelming other characteristics that it is most likely Marblehead or somewhere up that way. But Mm -hmm. uh, it was a piece that uh, Lee Kino sold to a collector years ago, and I got it from him. Now, uh, I always wondered why the single drop. Is it just for use of the way it is right now? It's designed that way uh, because the back rail is plain in this case the back rail is pine so clearly if they had wanted to be seen they would have put a mahogany rear rail yeah um but there's actually a woman right now who's studying them they they all seem to be massachusetts Mm. and she thinks they relate to i think tables made in scotland that were used in in bedrooms and Mm. that they may have had a, a a fabric over them or something. So, really? you know, this is a user-specific thing. This is mm-hmm. not an accident. This isn't a whimsical thing. Yeah. There was a reason that these tables were made. Mm. And um, anyway, there's probably going to be an article coming out in the next, you know, year or so, and we can all learn exactly why they were made. <laughs> now, when I met you, uh, what was it, a few years ago in two San Francisco? Or three, two or three years ago. Yeah, yeah you San did a Francisco. lecture on weather vanes, and I was fascinated. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah. You know, you, it gives you an opportunity when you're speaking uh, to speak with a, a level of candor that you wouldn't necessarily put in print, but <laughs> it gives you the opportunity to, to, to talk about things. And weather vanes are such a, uh, a problematic area within the folk art community. Uh, and that, why would you say that? Because of... Uh, well, I think, you know, markets... Uh, once something achieves a certain level of value, mm-hmm. uh, it, it creates an, a vacuum and an opportunity for people to uh, fake them, change them, alter them. I was wondering them. if that's where this was going. And, yeah. uh, you know, there are weather vanes that have been, you know, horses to which riders are attached. and yep, the Surrey and... P- patinas that get played with. And, you know, from that extreme all the way to things that are modern... That get you know treated with chemicals and antiqued, and uh, that get run through the marketplace. And at auction, I've just seen you know hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of weather vanes that get sold that just aren't real. And uh, do you think these people eventually find out that buy them? I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I on one hand, I hope they do. 
mm-hmm. because you want people to know what they have. On the other hand, it would be heartbreaking. You know, I, I watched sure. I watched a weather vane sell at a certain auction that was when I say it was new, I mean I'm older than this weather vane was. <laughs> and it you know, it was all faked up and someone paid, you know, like a hundred and fourteen thousand oh, dollars for is, it. That's and I mean it you know, what's it worth? As a decorative yeah. item, it's worth eight hundred dollars, right. twelve hundred dollars. I mean, yeah. you know, things have decorative value, as yeah. you well know. But, you know, but it was also the wrong price. And, you know, this is something that people should always bear in mind, that when something is either too cheap mm-hmm. or is sort of in the middle, you know, red flags should go up. You know, mm-hmm. the, the people that I've known that have been taken in by fakes. Are you saying this should have gone for a lot of money? This if should it have, was right. Yes. It was I a see. form that has brought as much as a million dollars. Okay. Yep. So a hundred thousand was the wrong price. I've seen that in paintings. It happens all the time, yep. and mm-hmm. the folks that I know who have been taken in by fakes in any category. Now I'm not talking about whether it could be furniture, paintings, whatever it is. They're invariably sucked in by the feeling that they're getting a deal. Right. Yeah. Uh, I think it's the uh, it's the exception when someone pays a really high price for a fake. Not saying it doesn't happen, but you know, more often than not, people lower their guard because ah. You know, they don't yeah. look at it as carefully. You know, they, they get greedy. Well, yeah, I guess that is that is an element that plays. But you would think if someone's going to invest that kind of money, they would get an expert in to help them. Well, in the case mm-hmm. of that particular piece, they had they they had engaged the services of someone who, oh. unfortunately, um, it was you know outside their area of real expertise. And, oh. You know, and and you know the the and I'm not here to bash auctions because I I do business with all the the auction companies and you know we're we're competitors we're friends and so forth but you know there is a perception when someone's buying at one of the major auction houses that it's the same as buying at say Tiffany's mm-hmm. or Ralph Lauren yeah and the fact of the matter is when you walk into Ralph Lauren and you pick up a sweater and it says that it's a hundred percent cashmere and it's five hundred dollars. Well, that's a lot of money for a sweater, but it really is 100% mm-hmm. cashmere. If you go to Tiffany's and you ask to see a diamond and it has a certification with it that tells you the color and the clarity, and it really is. Yeah. And, uh, you know, these auctions uh, put out these catalogs. They're very glitzy and they, they give the appearance of, of great expertise. Um, and they handle, obviously, some of the greatest things go through auction, but a lot of things that go through auction aren't great, and people buy them. I've gone into people's homes where they have things that they're very proud of. Oh, yeah. you know, I bought this at this auction house or that auction house, and it's you know, yeah, it went through that auction. It was the worst item sold at that auction, <laughs> and you know, it's not yeah. my job to go around uh, policing, but it's it's sort of heartbreaking because it isn't the same. I just had a, a woman bring in a picture of her quote unquote hundred thousand dollar daffodil Tiffany mm. lamp. And I'm looking at it mm. and right instantly. Mm. And I said, you know, I'm going to have someone else look at this right. just to be sure. Right. But, uh, and she had a lot of other nice things. Yeah. But it was don't shoot the messenger thing. She was not happy with it. Well, me. you know, it's, it's not a happy situation. <laughs> yeah. And um, unfortunately, when you are deemed an expert uh, and an authority, there's times when things come across my desk and I'm put into situations where, you know, I'm, I'm forced to tell people. But, you know, I, I try not to do, I do appraisals for my clients for insurance purposes. I really stay away from donation appraisals. It's a different discipline. It's a different level of mm-hmm. specialty. Um, you know, so usually I'm, I'm just talking to friends, mm. but sometimes someone will, you know, can I just get your opinion? And yeah, 
You know, I get, or I get unsolicited emails mm-hmm. and um, I answer. I answer all my emails mm-hmm. and I'm sure that there's people that get it and aren't happy. Mm-hmm. They've got a folk painting and they think it's something very special and I have to tell them it's not American. But they need to know the truth. I, that's and, what I think. Knowledge is power. Yeah. yeah. You know, that's, that's what, I, that's what uh, puts food on my table. Right. And I want to talk about that rooster. That, okay. That's a fantastic Yeah, that's a, uh, a cast iron and sheet iron weather vane. Oh, it's cast and sheet. Yeah. yeah. The front part is, is made in two mm-hmm. sections, and it's, it's cast iron. The tail is sheet iron. And it's, it's of a type that have variously been attributed to either what's called the Rochester Iron Works or the Gilmanton Iron Works. And it, it's, it tells an interesting story because... Quite often in the art field, and particularly the folk art field, something gets published with a name, sometimes for valid reasons, sometimes for unknown reasons. And once it gets in print, it follows it. Mm-hmm. So after I acquired this weather vane, of which there are many of them, it's a manufactured piece, I wanted to know what the basis for this attribution was. Mm. Is there a signed one somewhere? Does one exist with a bill of sale? Mm. Does one exist with a, In a catalog, a, a documented yeah. uh, uh, history? And I actually engaged the services of a, a scholar who I work with to go up there and try and figure this all out. And at the end of the day, we really got nowhere. So uh, there is a group of them. They're all made in the same factory. There's also a horse version that is made in two sizes. That are you know if you go to, and you googled uh, you know Rochester Iron Works you'd see fifty of these weather vanes that come up and they're they're real and they're cast as they're, well the horses the horses are made in two sections mm-hmm. of of cast iron that are screwed together or mm-hmm. bolted and the tails are sheet iron and um, you know they they're they're wonderful examples um, now were they ever gilt they not over iron yes yeah, they yeah. Were, this yeah. one has got a secondary coat of paint on it this mm-hmm. was either gilded or or painted a different color originally this is 19th century paint but it's got a wonderful old repaint on it mm-hmm. um, i have no problem with that kind of paint history on an object as long as it's you know has a has a uh, you know a working history with the piece the very typical kind of paint history on windsor's as well you know, Windsor's, the idea that a Windsor is in, quote, original paint is almost unknown, mm. almost unheard of. I've handled hundreds and hundreds of Windsors, yeah. and I can count on one hand the number that are really in original paint. The wow. chair I'm looking at right there is a, is a 1760, 1770 Philadelphia Windsor chair that has uh, an old reddish-brown paint, probably Victorian, over the original paint, but even that is is a wonderful layering of, mm-hmm. of paint and tells a story and is is very desirable. But it would not be as valuable as one in, in that case that's over the original blue paint. I mean, if that year was oh, blue, you know, like a robin's egg blue. It's like a robin's egg yeah. blue. A lot of times you can tell on the underside of these pieces. You can see a little splash of Absolutely. another color uh, but, on the but pine people. Or... People should be very wary of of things that are supposed to be an original paint because they're just, they're rare. doesn't mean they yeah. don't exist. I've got half a dozen pieces probably or so in this room that do have original paint, but you have to be wary of it and careful mm-hmm. because, again, marketplaces equal chicanery. So, <laughs> you know, painted furniture started to bring money in yeah. the early to mid-1970s. Mm. Go back to the Chris Huntington sale and other events, and 
you know? There things would be get a painted. There would be a reason for things to be painted. Yeah, yeah. Now, if you, for the listener that may want to know this, if you have a, where is the line where you get something restored? I mean, that's probably such a it's a very sub, it's, it, it, it's a subjective question, and I like your word, restored, because there are people that are restorers, and there are people that are conservators. Mm. And I think most people that are in the field are restorers. And I think that, you know, it's sort of like the Hippocratic Oath of, you know, do no harm. <laughs> and I think I it's, 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 it's our role yeah. uh, as advisors and dealers and so forth to do as little to these things as is possible. Mm. Um, you know, there's certain disciplines and kinds of objects. I don't even know who restore them because I don't get them restored. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes a, a piece comes along that's otherwise perfect and it has a scratch or a flaw and it should be dealt with. But, you know, for example, in the field of American painted furniture, in the last, you know, 20 years where we've seen, you know, extremely high prices, pieces can bring hundreds of thousands, uh, almost a million, you know, 50,000, 100, you know, big mm-hmm. numbers. Um, a, a number of my uh, competitors um, eagerly clean pieces of furniture. Um, as you might randomly clean paintings. And I draw a distinction between paintings and three-dimensional objects Mm. because the portraits that are behind you were cleaned by a conservator of, you know, degraded varnish. Mm. The varnish was removed. They were re-varnished. Yeah. Period. And it's very good. It's important to have good varnish. Important. It's done. It's Mm. clean. Nicotine came off. But objects, you know, have dimension to them mm-hmm. take on aspects of use and patina and which is uh, desir- desirable in my and, and I think that there's a we're going through a period that may be looked back on much like formal furniture you know a lot of formal furniture got refinished mm-hmm. in the 30s the 40s the 50s yeah. you know even into the 1970s so hard to find one original finish exactly like and your to, piece over there appears to be it is yeah but you look back on all those pieces that got refinished skinned whatever you want to call it and they you see it on the antiques roadshow all the time oh you know here's our family high boy and you know the person is heartbroken to hear that it's worth fifteen thousand, and they proudly tell the story of how they had it refinished yeah and, you know the restore the uh, appraiser tells them it'd be worth a hundred thousand yeah and i think that in the world of painted furniture uh, pieces of painted furniture that have been left alone uh, i think in the future are going to have a greater value to me than yeah. pieces that have been cleaned up and brightened it makes them brighter it might make them more saleable to some people but i i think we're going to look back on it with regret yeah yeah i agree we're just about out of time but i have a couple of other questions uh for you the winter show yes can we talk a little bit about sure. that? Sure. You've been I, doing I, that for how long? I started it in 2002. It was my first year. Yeah. It was the year following 9-11. Uh-huh. It was the year that they had it at the Hilton Hotel because the armory was taken. Uh, but I've done it now for, I guess, 11 years. It might be, be our 11th year. And it's the only show we do. And it's a, a vetted show, very s- stringently vetted. Um and, uh, you know, as a kid, I went there with my parents. Uh, I remember meeting the great Charlie Montgomery, the, the great professor from Yale there as a kid, and uh, examining a Pembroke table together. Um, mm. So for me, you know, getting the chance to do the show was sort of coming full circle. And uh, this year I'm on the dealers committee, which is uh, so I'm spending a lot of time hopefully improving on the show for the other dealers. 
You know, it's it's it, you know generally regarded as the best show in the country. Yeah, you know, I've heard a, that. There's a yeah. small number of Americana people, but um, you know, it's an opportunity to walk around and there's Tiffany lamps and there's antiquities and there's old masters and there's Gilbert Stuart portraits of George Washington and. Wow. You know, now what that's in the what when is that January? That is generally in the third week of January. Mm-hmm. It coincides with what they call Americana Week, where Christie's and Sotheby's and now Lee Kino and others yeah. uh, have their their winter right. sales. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know we save up all year uh, for like objects yeah. uh, to do it, which is a sacrifice and is mm-hmm. a different business model than we had done in, in in the past. But you can't do that show without bringing in new mm-hmm. and exciting pieces because people travel long and far and pay great money to come into the show on opening night and you want to you don't want to disappoint them yeah i bet that's real successful for you it's fun and it gives me an opportunity to work with kate she yeah, comes right. and helps yeah. us every year and yeah. uh it's uh it's a lot of work but it's 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 yeah. fun too i know i i i see the work that goes into shows and it it baffles me i don't think the public has a concept of what hard work! I'm yeah. not saying this for me because I do one show a year. But dealers that you know do many shows, uh, mm-hmm. it's such hard work, it and really I, I have such respect for them. Yeah. Um, you know, having to have the, the good merchandise and put together an attractive display yeah. and have their things priced, you know, to sell. It's it's a it's a tough game. Yes. Yeah. And not be sitting there texting. <laughs> I've seen that happen a few times. Well, it's really good. I know you get up and you talk to people. Yes. And I think that's very important. It's, it's hey, what you're there for. Yeah, that's right. What's what's your website? It's shorsh-smiles.com. Okay, can you spell that? S-C-H-O-R-S-C-H dash sign smiles, S-M-I-L-E-S dot com. Very good. Well, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank Thanks you for so coming. Much. All right. So this is Martin Willis with David Shorsh, and we're signing off. Mm-hmm.